0: Words that I'd like to direct your attention to this afternoon are found once again in the book of Mark. We'll be looking at Mark chapter 6, verses 53 through 56. Mark 6, verses 53 to 56. When they'd crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat immediately the people recognized him and ran about that whole country and began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. And wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were being cured. Please pray with me. Lord, we ask for your assistance once again as we examine your word, that you would give us insight and understanding, not just to grasp what it's saying, but that our, our affections and our volition would also accompany your truth. Lord, we want to be like you in every way. We want to think as You thought and feel as You felt. Love as You loved. Lord, we're not content to just know we will one day die and rise again. Lord, in the, in, in the life that You've given us now, we want to live for You. In light of all that You've accomplished for us. Because You've given us an eternal hope. Our hope isn't in this life. So help us to live a life that reflects that. We ask these things in your name. Amen. The this, this story before us reminds me of the opening scene in Disney's Bambi. Where word is quickly spread amongst all the forest creatures that the prince has been born. And so they, they, they squirrels and rabbits and skunks and birds start chitter-chattering each other. And they just start coming out of the bushes and the trees running to, to take a look at the newborn prince. And likewise, when Jesus comes to the shore of Gennesaret, what this text shows us is that people are coming from all over the place to come to be healed by him. Everywhere Jesus goes, people come rushing to him. Which begs the question, what was it that people saw in Jesus that made them want to rush to him, to come to him? All these people saw something. And is there something here that we can learn and even replicate today so that we too might see people flocking to Jesus once again. Well, let's consider that as we look again at Mark chapter six verse fifty-three. In my opinion, this is the easiest passage in the Gospel of Mark to understand. It is super straightforward. The the point is that people come to Jesus because they recognize his ability. To heal their illnesses. But the significance of the passage is really seen when, we're, when we zoom out from the passage and, and we're reminded of the overall structure of Mark. So this passage serves more than just to clarify the point that Jesus can heal people, though it doesn't very much indicate that. But there's, there's a little bit more to the passages which is seen in the overall structure. Remember that what, what is different about Mark in comparison with the other Gospels, one of the differences, is that Mark focuses on the way people respond to Jesus. In particular, he focuses on four distinct groups. The responses of the religious leaders, which was generally conflict over authority, over religious authority. The response of the crowds—they're drawn to his power, but they ignore his words. The response of faithless disciples—that initially follow him, but then when trials come, they fall away. And then, of course, faithful disciples—and those are actually the, the fewest uh, amount. There, there's the less. There's less in instances of the faithful disciples than of the other responses. Let's zoom out again and just recall a broad outline where we're at in the book of Mark. The book of Mark can really be divided into two distinct groups. Most scholars divide it into two groups, uh, two sections. One that focuses on his Galilean ministry, which we're in right now. It ends at chapter 8, verse 21. And the second, which focuses on his ministry within Jerusalem. And the Galilean ministry can really be broken up, I think, into three sections. The first focuses on Jesus' ministry of preaching and healing. As he goes about teaching people, he is also, that teaching is accompanied with a healing ministry. We recently uh, finished uh, focusing on the section that highlights the tension between genuine faith and the temptation to fear. And the contrast between Faith and fear, and we 're in the midst of this a section that began at chapter six, verse thirty, which will carry us through the rest of this of his Galilean ministry, which really focuses on the fact that the heart is the problem, so the focus that we saw this initially in jesus 's distribution of the bread is his miracle of uh, producing bread. When Jesus was pictured as the great shepherd feeding his sheep. The disciples recognized the external need of uh, that the people had for food, but they failed to recognize the fact that what people needed even more than food was Jesus. They needed their great shepherd. Jesus provides food for him, but he wanted the disciples to see who he was, that what they needed was him, Yahweh. And when they didn't get it, Jesus performed that great miracle to very much clarify to them he is God, but they didn't get it again because their their hearts were hardened they didn't they understood the external needs of people, but they didn't even recognize ultimately what the what people's internal even their internal need for a shepherd then in verses fifty three to fifty six Mark notes the responses, sorry, the response of the crowds. And that's what we'll focus on today. And they continue to come to him to ask to be saved from their sicknesses. Then in chapter 7, verses 1 to 23, we're given the responses of the religious authorities. And then 24 to 29, response of genuine faith. Then again, we're told about the response of the crowds to Jesus. And then finally, Another similar story of a miracle, miracle of providing bread for and fish for thousands of people. That highlights again the response of the disciples. So I want to. What we're looking at today is just Mark highlighting. This is how the crowds respond to Jesus. They see him in all of his power as a man who is able to cure any illness that they have, and so everywhere Jesus goes. They ask him to heal him. They see Jesus as a divine healer, which of course he was, but that's not all he was. And this emphasis in this section of Mark is that Jesus came not just to meet our external needs, but ultimately our internal needs. So let's look at this passage in depth. The first point, there's really two points to my message today. The first is that people come to Jesus because they recognize his power to heal. And that first point really is the exposition of the whole passage. The second point is, draws out the implication. So what? So what that that's what people saw? So people come to Jesus because they recognize his power to heal. But what they fail to recognize is their ultimate need for Christ. Let's look at that first point, beginning in verse 53. That verse tells us that this account takes place in the land at Gennesaret. This is what the Tyndale Bible Dictionary tells us about Gennesaret. It was on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee between Capernaum and Magdala, and it was known for its unusually fertile soil. Temperatures ranging from hot to mild allowed for a long growing season and abundant crops. The fruits of Gennesaret were so exceptional that the rabbis did not allow them in Jerusalem during the feast observances, fearing that many would attend only to enjoy their succulence. Rabbis term this area the Garden of God. And during Jesus' lifetime, the area was considered the garden spot of Palestine. So where Jesus is, is the, mo- the most fruitful and um, bountiful area in all of Israel. So, and it's, it's highly populated. And so when people are coming to Jesus, this is, this is, there are is thousands of people again flocking to Him over this most popular of places to live. And so immediately upon mooring to the shore, Jesus is recognized and He's surrounded by crowds. And verse 55 emphasizes again that people were coming from all over the place. Notice the word Whole, the phrase "whole country," from the whole country, throughout the whole region, not just one village, all the villages—they're—they're they're, they're streaming to Jesus. And then verse 56 says, "Every place Jesus went, people begged him to save them." And I use the word "save" because the word that's used in the Greek is the word "sozo." which usually is translated to save. It's where we get the term soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation. So they're begging him to save them. Now, not save them from their sin. Ultimately, they're asking to be saved from their immediate needs. And they beg Jesus to save them, one, because they recognize, first of all, they have a need that needs to be met, and they're desperate to have that need met. So they recognize their needs. Second of all, they recognize this is a man that can meet this need. Because Jesus has proven time and time again, he can heal any illness, any infirmity, any deformity. He can cast out demons. Whatever the problem, Jesus can solve it. And the reality is people will flock to anyone who's able to meet their needs. We, we see that today. Thirsty caravans, for instance, will gather at an oasis because that's where water is. College football coaches will bend over backwards to recruit their, the necessary players for their program, and they'll flock to them, offering all sorts of endorsements to get them in to play for their team. People will will flock to pharmacies and pay exorbitant prices for drugs in the hope that their problems will be ameliorated. If there is some hope that there's a cure, people will go and find it. I mean, just think in your own life. As you've encountered especially painful needs, and somebody has mentioned there may be a source of healing what you have done or might do if you knew that that's, that issue could be immediately solved if you just went to this person. So that's why people are flocking to Jesus. They know he can save them from their infirmities. And Naaman, who is the commander of the army of the king of Syria, it says in Second Kings 5.1, says he was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper so despite all of his great military might and accomplishments, he was a leper, and he had presumably sought all sorts of cures and when his a servant girl that had been who is from Israel informs this man that that there's a prophet in Israel who could heal him of his disease. He writes a quick message to the king of Israel asking him to heal his disease. And the the king of Israel passes the message along to Elisha and Naaman travels all the way to Israel and follows the prophet's instructions, albeit reluctantly, if you know the story, But because he does eventually follow the instructions, he's healed. He's willing to travel all the way to Israel. He's willing to humiliate himself, according to the prophet's instructions, because he's so desperate to have his infirmity relieved. And likewise, the crowds of Gennesaret were plagued with various kinds of problems. And so they come to Jesus in droves because they knew he could heal them. Now notice, though, that Mark, very remarkably, doesn't say anything about Jesus speaking. In fact, this is, the, this is the first time in the book of Mark, maybe the only time, I'm not sure, but it's at least the first time in the book of Mark that Jesus', is, Jesus healing is not accompanied with teaching. Again, so these people are not coming to hear anything that Jesus has to say. They're only coming to have their physical needs met. There's no indication they were coming to have their spiritual need met. And that's what brings us to the second point. People need to recognize their ultimate need. What we need to, I think, first of all, understand is that sickness is a work of the devil. That is, that it is a result of sin entering into the world and is a symptom of the death that resulted of sins coming into the world. When when Adam chose to listen to Satan's lie the consequence of that choice was death death came into the world through sin romans 5:12 so then just as sin entered through the into the world through one man and death through sin so death spread to all people because all sinned and so death diseases deformities decay destruction all are symptoms of death. They're all the result of sin entering the world. See, before Adam sinned, there was no death. In fact, God said after he created all things that it was very good. It was good. There was no death. There was no dying. And so all these bad things are consequences of sin entering the world. The wages of sin is death and i I want to emphasize this because when you hear the word death logically, logically so immediately we think just passing away but the death that entered the world was not limited just to dying but all of the effects of death disease decay destruction spiritual death See, God had created a world that was defined by life and fruitfulness and abundance. But when Adam sinned, that world of life immediately became a world of death. A world and lives that would be continually defined by death and destruction. And therefore, everything dies, or at least is in the process of dying. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verse 18. We read this in the scripture reading today, but I want to focus particularly on these verses. Romans 8, verse 18. For consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Why? What he's saying is that all of creation right now is groaning because of the effects of sin. And it longs to be set free from all the effects of sin, from this life of death. Creation is in a state of death. And it longs to be set free from it. And this text tells us that God subjected it. God subjected it to futility and put it in bondage to decay. So really, every sickness is just a symptom of death. It's just, it's just a, a sign of what's to come. We get sick and have bodies that break as a consequence of sin entering the world. So from colds to cancer, sicknesses to surgeries... All minor and major problems are the result of sin. They are all warning lights and and the, the reminders that one day, all of us, every single one of us will pass away. It may be in a car accident weeks from now. Or it may be from cancer years from now. We don't know. But all the physical problems that we endure are just signs that it's coming. We are subject to death. We have lo- we as Paul says in Romans 7, oh who will set me free from this body of sin and death? We have bodies that are subject to death. And unless we get the Death problem fixed, the ultimate problem we're suffering with. We will perish eternally. So this is a sign that's saying, wake up, you got a massive problem that this cancer is just a a symptom of. You need to get the ultimate problem dealt with, not just the symptom. Now, when you're driving along the road and you have a check engine light, let's say it's a, you need to get oil in your car. When it goes on, you're reminded you need to put oil in your car. And if you don't, eventually your car will die. That warning light is there to tell you you got a problem and it needs to be addressed. And every physical infirmity we encounter is a reminder that unless we deal with our greatest threat, we will perish in our sins. And the crowds of Gennesaret recognize they have problems. Again, what, what they fail to recognize is that even if they get the, the problem that they immediately have Jesus heal, even if they get that problem fixed, other problems are going to emerge. All that Jesus is doing is giving him a temporary fix. Like you just change your oil one time. A, that'll give you your engine life for a little bit, maybe a year if you're lucky. But eventually it'll die too. The problems will keep emerging. They recognize they have a, they have a symptom of a greater problem, which is death. They had the symptom cured, but not the disease. And Jesus came to cure the disease, not merely the symptoms. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He took on a body of sin and death, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. I'm not saying Jesus had a body corrupted by sin. He didn't. But it was subject to sin's corruption. And he took that on so that in his righteous life, he might bring death to death. And deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 1 John 3.8 For this purpose, the Son of God was revealed to destroy the works of the devil. That's talking about all the effects of sin. And we saw that Romans 8 declared that God subjected all of creation to futility and hope. That one day it might be set free from its corruption. That was always on his mind. Immediately after sin into the world, God was thinking about a rescue plan. Not just for man, but for all of his creation. And that's what's revealed in Romans 8. And this is the great hope that Christians have, that one day all believers will be freed from the corruption of sin and death. And that likewise, all of creation will be freed. We will live in a a world that is free from pain, that is free from sorrow, that is free from every effect of death. Romans, sorry, Revelation 21, verse verse 4 says that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will not exist anymore or mourning or crying or pain for the former things have ceased to exist they will be gone Jesus came to destroy death remember what it says in 1 Corinthians 15 oh death where is thy victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He'll eliminate it. And because Jesus came to cure the disease and not just the symptoms, that's his priority. That's his priority. Jesus' priority is complete healing. After Adam sinned and death came into the world, the Lord placed cherubim in front of the tree of life to guard people from eating its fruit. It says in Genesis 3.24 that he drove out the man east of the Garden of Eden and placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way from the tree of life. He did that because he didn't want people to live eternally in a state of decay. He was being merciful. He wanted to give them eternal life. He wanted them to escape death. But he had to provide a solution for that disease first. And of course that could only be removed if the Son of God himself paid the penalty of death. The Son of God had to die himself. And when he rose again from the dead, he proved death is done. All who have faith in me will likewise one day rise and I will bring about a new heavens and new earth. I will, I will resurrect the whole creation. He wasn't content with a temporary fix, right? He could have, he could have immediately healed any wound. But God, God so loved the world that he sent his son, not just to heal people, but to save them from their ultimate problem. Would you want your child to be cured of the flu just to know that months, maybe years later, they would die of cancer? The story is told of a desperate father who searched everywhere for a cure to heal his dying daughter. And one day he heard a About an old hermit who lived in the woods. Who who had the power to to develop healing potions. And the old man in the woods offered him a special potion that could cure his daughter. But like all fairy tales, there was a catch. This man was told that he could minister the cure immediately. Save his dying daughter. But the effects of the potion would wear off ten years later and she would die. Or, he could allow her to die, and if he poured that potion over her grave ten years later, she would rise again and never be subject to any infirmity ever. Well, what would you choose? Temporary healing with eventual death? Or temporary death? With eventual gain. See I think Jim Elliot was right. When he said. He is no fool. Who gives up what he cannot keep. To gain what he cannot. Earn. God as a loving father. Cares far more about saving us from death. Than he does from our temporal. Problems. But in order for for us to realize that our ultimate problem is death, he allows us to be subject to the effects of death, to the symptoms of death, disease and decay. That we might run to Christ recognizing he is the only cure for that disease. Sure, you can get cured from cancer. You can get cured from your pimples. You can get cured from infertility. You can get cured from all sorts of infirmities. But there is only one cure for death. All of those things are just symptoms of the ultimate problem. And God wants us to see that's the problem. That's the problem. All those diseases and disabilities are just warning lights to calling us to take heed of the reality of our condition. And we all know it. There's not a single person here that thinks they're not going to die. We all know we are, but somehow we just blind ourselves to it. God wants to remind us, you're not just going to die, you're in the process of dying. Wake up, sleeper. I think the question then, then somebody might ask is, well, why me? And I and ask that honestly and not just in a self-pitiful way. Why, if, if all of us are subject to death, why do I have to be afflicted with my particular affliction? It doesn't seem fair. And this is, this, is, this is something we have to come to grips with. If the wages of sin is death, and all of us deserve death, we all deserve the symptoms of death also. And so when you look at somebody who's suffering with any affliction, it's helpful to be reminded, that's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. That's not being unfair. That's what we deserve. And so, well, then there's the, still the question asked, well, why, why does that person not have to face my affliction? That doesn't seem fair. But again, the question there is, why is God being so merciful to so many people while he's allowing me to get what I deserve? And I don't know. Maybe the answer is seen in the, in, in the story of Job. As it says in the book of James, that the conclusion to the book of Job is that the Lord is merciful and he's abundant in steadfast love. Why God chooses some people to get fully what they deserve in this life and then in the next. Maybe, maybe it's just so that others might res- recognize their need to be rescued. And you might be asking, but, but if I've already, if I've already recognized that I need Christ, and I've already trusted in Christ, will God heal me now? If I've already received the cure for my ultimate disease, can God heal me now? Can I ask for that? Well, I think he can. And I think he might. And I think it's fine to pursue all sorts of cures because there's no virtue in being sick. There's no virtue in dying. It is just the consequence of sin. But our aim as believers is to exalt him, not to improve our lives. Philippians 4, chapter 11 through 13 Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He said earlier, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Again, he wasn't just he wasn't just throwing out platitudes. This is a man who had suffered massively. But his hope wasn't in this life, it wasn't in the temporal healing. And so, being content with our brokenness really demonstrates that our hope is not in this life, it's in heaven. And so, evangelistically, it has contentment, has more power than any miracle that could be performed. Right, We've seen time and time again in the, in the book of Mark that even in the face of miracles, people would not trust in Christ. We saw that in the, in the story a few months ago of the rich man and Lazarus. When the rich man said, send him somebody from the dead and warn my brothers. He said, even if somebody were to rise from the dead, that would not be enough for them to repent from their sins. And also we were told in 1 Peter 3 that in the midst of our afflictions when we express joy and hope it will prompt people to ask of the hope that still is within us where's that hope coming from that i don't as i look at your life and i look at your suffering i have no concept why you could be content why you're not anxious why you're not fretting and it's an opportunity to say my hope is not in this life i know i'm going to die And my hope is that one day I'll rise from the dead. Contentment with illness and frailty demonstrates our understanding that sickness is merely a symptom. And contentment in the face of death demonstrates our confidence that the ultimate disease has already been cured. The problem's already solved, you could say. The problem's solved. I will rise again. Because my Lord has risen again. And so I think our priority. If Christ's priority is bringing about a cure for the ultimate problem. Our priority needs to be helping people see their ultimate problem. So what should we do? If towards this end the Lord in his sovereignty deems it necessary. For us to take on sickness and even death. I think our heart should be, bring it on. That all might know that Christ has the power to conquer death. And I'm not being rah-rah here. I know that for those suffering, that this is a very unnatural response. But I also know what the scriptures say. John 12, 24 to 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. See, people's physical needs are obvious. They're glaringly obvious. But their spiritual needs are less so. I mean, even when they, even when they intellectually know they're gonna die, the reality of what will happen after death is not so obvious. Or even the fact that they will die because of sin. And therefore they deserve to die. See, if people today became more aware of their spiritual need, they too would run to Christ in the same way that we see people in Gennesaret running to Christ. But most don't run to Christ because either they don't recognize what the real problem is, death, spiritual death, or they don't know that Jesus is the cure. The reason people aren't running and flocking to Christ now is because they don't know one of those two things. so, again, what do we do? Well, the Paul, address, Paul addresses this when he asks, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Well, how how do we help people recognize what their ultimate problem is and that Jesus is the only cure? Well, I think as we meet people who face diseases and death and other forms of loss, we cannot be shy about the fact that their diseases are merely symptoms. They're merely symptoms. Death's coming. And it's coming to all of us. And I think we need to help them see that they are warnings about the reality that death is imminent. And their greatest need is to be freed from death. This can only happen through faith in Christ. But tell them also about the hope of the resurrection. Tell them also that that we will be raised with physical bodies. And that we will live forever in a perfected creation and that sin will no longer be present in the new heaven and the new earth and that all death all tears all pain one day will be eradicated forever we need to tell people this good news that there is a cure for death and if people understand what that ultimate problem that what their ultimate problem is they will run to Christ arguably the greatest evangelist of all time was george whitfield i say that because he was the personal force the individual behind the great awakening that took place in the 18th century in england and north america he was the primary catalyst the the, the most prolific preacher of that Time period. It's estimated that he preached face to face to 10 million people. Again, face to face. This is a time before there was any radio or any other sort of media except written print. When he preached in Philadelphia, it was at a time when Philadelphia had 13,000 people living there. And he preached to 6,000 people in one morning while in Philadelphia. In the evening, he preached to 8,000 people. And then on Sunday, he preached to 25,000. Twice the population of the city. And when he left Philadelphia, a thousand men followed him on horseback just to hear him preach again. Listen to this account of Nathan Cole, who was a farmer who, who heard Whitfield preach. He said, I was in my field at work when I dropped my tool that I had in my hand and ran home. I bid my wife to get ready quick to go and hear Mr. Whitfield preach at Middletown. I ran to my pasture for my horse with all my might, fearing that I should be too late to hear him. I brought my horse home and took my wife up and went forward as fast as I thought the horse could bear. And when my horse started to run out of breath, I would get down and put my wife on the saddle and bid her ride as fast as she could and to not stop or slack unless I told her to. And so I would run until I was as much out of breath and then I'd mount my horse again. Fearing we should be too late to hear the sermon, for we had 12 miles to ride double in little more than an hour. I saw before me, he describes the the ride, he said, I saw before me a cloud of fog. I thought it came from the Connecticut River, but as I came near to the road, I heard a noise, something like a low rumbling thunder and found it was the noise of horses' feet coming down the road. And this cloud was a cloud of dust made by the horses' feet. It arose some rods into the air over the tops of the hills and trees. And when I came within about 20 rods of the road, I could see men and horses slipping along in the cloud like shadows. As I drew nearer, It seemed like a steady stream of horses and their riders, scarcely a horse more than his length behind another, all of a lather and foam with sweat, their breath rolling out of their nostrils in the cloud of dust. Every horse seemed to go with all his might to carry his rider to hear the news from heaven for the saving of souls. It made me tremble to see the sight, how the world was in a struggle. When we got down to the old meeting house, there was a great multitude. It was said to be three or four thousand people assembled together. And when I saw Mr. Whitfield come upon the scaffold, he looked almost angelic. A young, slender youth before some thousands of people with a bold, undaunted countenance. In my hearing how God was with him everywhere as he came along, it solemnized my mind and put me into a trembling fear Before he began to even preach. For he looked as if he was clothed with authority from the great God. And a sweet solemn solemnity sat upon his brow. And my hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. By God's blessing my old foundation was broken up. And I saw that my righteousness would not save me. This is a man who was desperate to hear Whitfield preach. Because he understood That his ultimate problem was spiritual. And it really wasn't until he heard Whitfield preach that he came under conviction that his works would not save him. And he was saved. And this, this sort of story happened again and again and again. Why? Well, ultimately it's because God did a miracle. God worked a miracle to open people's eyes to recognize their ultimate need was not temporal healing, but it was to escape death. And he used Whitfield because Whitfield was a man who was willing to tell people the truth. That their ultimate need was to, to escape sin and death, and that Christ was the only cure. And likewise, if we desire, and I think expect, Christ to have a similar revival in our day, we too need to be equipped with the very same message and willing to tell people the truth that their symptoms are merely symptoms of death and the only cure is Christ the physical needs of people are obvious and when people recognize their the greater spiritual need they will flock to Christ. Because he's the only cure. It's our responsible, our responsibility to tell them that great news. Let's pray. Lord, we want to tell people the truth, but we also want to tell it with honest compassion and tenderness and care. And so I pray for both broken hearts and bold hearts, bold tongues that would be willing to tell people the truth because the consequences are so severe and that we would likewise also not love our life in this world so much. That we would be unwilling to take the sufferings that you deem it necessary for us to bear. Because we recognize we deserve it. For we are all sinners. We not only deserve death, Lord, we deserve any affliction that you choose us to bear. I pray that you would give us such humility. Like Job, that we would have contentment to trust you in your designs, and that we would use whatever you and your sovereignty decide to bring into our life, that we'd use it as a platform to proclaim that our hope is not now our ultimate hope. Is that because Christ rose from the dead, we too will rise. Give, give conviction to that truth and give life to that doctrine. That that conviction would be obvious. And Lord, even if it means you, you afflict me, bring it on. That people might know their only hope is in Christ. We thank you for the hope that we do have because it's an eternal hope, and that nothing, neither death, nor life, nor any created thing, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so it's in his name we pray these things. Amen.